When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. And today, Angela has chosen the topic, and it's a bit of a surprising one for you, Barnesy. Well, it is a bit. Yeah, it's one that's a bit out of my usual wheelhouse. I mean, it's still in the 20th century, John. I haven't gone completely mad. Yeah. Um, no, 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 be insane. Yeah, but it did. It occurred to me that apart from the stuff that everyone knows, my knowledge about sort of the machinations behind. World War One. It's all a bit sketchy. I don't know why. Right. If it's just because it's such a horrific conflict that I've never really felt compelled to dig too deeply. Um, right. So the reason I've ended up choosing a World War One story is that a while ago I read an article about the Zimmerman telegram, Ooh. which played a not insignificant part in bringing the US into a war that their president didn't really want to take them into. Sounds a bit like how you brought me into this podcast with a tweet. <laughs> yeah, it's very very similar, John. <laughs> So I thought we'd talk about that, sort of the Zimmerman telegram was a starting point, but basically how the USA ended up joining World War One. Sounds very interesting. No relation to Bob Zimmerman. No relation to Bob Zimmerman, as far as I know. I mean, it could be, right. but we don't know that. So um, let's go to the beginning of World War One. I. I think we don't need to go back any further than that, John. That's all right. What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so it's June 1914. Duke Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated by a Serbian who felt that Serbia and not Austria should rule Bosnia. So that's Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, not the Scottish indie band. No, although their first hit was called Take Me Out. So... Down, you know, down, 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 down. Yeah, do you want to sing the whole thing or we probably not got time for that? No, you're all right, John. <laughs> okay. So, not name that tune, we're fine. So this led to a bit of a chain reaction of events, didn't it? Russia gets involved because they had an alliance with Serbia and Germany then declares war on Russia because Germany has an alliance with Austro-Hungary. That's not Austro-Hungary, that's good enough <laughs> country. Austria-Hungary. Making up countries now, John. Yeah, it's like diplomacy or something. And then Britain <laughs> declares war on Germany because Germany had invaded neutral Belgium. It was all a complete mess. It was all a mess. And Britain sort of uses the invasion of neutral Belgium as the reason to enter the war. But also, remember, it is in Britain's interest to keep Germany out of France because economically Germany's getting stronger than Britain and it's threatening to have power over much of Western Europe, which wouldn't be ideal. Right. So we've skipped through the First World War breaking out. It's underway. Yeah. They didn't call it the First World War, did they? That would have been a bit demoralising when it was all over. It's the end of the First World War. (laughs) What? (laughs) The First World War, yeah, it's the end of the First World War. Um, No, that would have been awful. So you've got, just in terms of the Allies, you've got your Entente powers, that's France, United Kingdom, Russia, Japan. Yeah. People forget about that one. And by 1915, Italy, they're against the central powers of Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire... Um, little Bulgaria. Little Bulgaria joins in as well. So meanwhile, in America, Woodrow Wilson is the 28th president of the United States. He's a Democrat. He began his first term in 1913. And when the war began in 1914, he proclaimed the neutrality of the United States. Uh, he himself wasn't particularly keen on remaining neutral. Um, he did show antipathy towards the Germans, but the country as a whole wasn't really up for joining this war. 
Yes. I mean, America is still a pretty young country at this point. And the people with the power are also, of course, descendants from white Europeans. So in the US, people have different allegiances to different European powers. There's also a sense that uh, they are America, they're not Europe. They've left Europe and all its problems behind and sort of they're slightly above all this infighting. Yeah. I mean, there, there were prominent voices on both sides of the debate. For, for entering the war. You had the non-interventionists and they had your industrialist and pacifist Henry Ford and the publisher William Randolph Hearst. They were campaigning for this neutrality. While on the other side, you had what they called the preparedness movement, who were a largely Anglophile group on the east of the states. And they championed US intervention and particularly stronger ties with Britain because they were British descendants. And they were supported by former President Theodore Roosevelt. Indeed. From where we get the name Teddy Bear. Just give you that little bit of information from Theodore Roosevelt. (laughs) Um, Anyway, despite its neutrality, the USA was supplying materials, arms, food and all that to the Entente powers. So technically, as a neutral country, they were also still trading with the central powers. But there was a British naval blockade, which meant that supplies from the US weren't able to get through. Yeah, so they're effectively saying, we would supply you as well, Germany, but we can't get through. Sorry. So we're just supplying the Allies. So that's how they got away with it while being neutral, really. Right. So the US banks were also lending to the Allied powers, which caused a lot of tension between Wall Street and the government, didn't it? Yeah. In in 1914, the then Secretary of State, uh, William Jennings Bryan, he wanted to ban all loans to belligerent countries. The thinking being that cutting off money supplies to them would basically end the war. And President Wilson agreed in principle, but he's under pressure from the banks and American business interests, who, of course, are doing billions of dollars of trade with the allied nations. Perpetuating wars to keep the banks happy. That could never happen today, could it, Angela? It could never happen today, John, something like that. (laughs) That's actually on our mugs. (laughs) It is. It's one of the slogans on the mugs that you Patreon supporters can get. Do continue, Angela. Thank you, John. (laughs) So when the war started, the beginning of the war, the Allies thought it was all going to be over in a year and absolutely definitely be done and dusted by 1916 or so. So they were spending and borrowing with abandon. They were very much adapting my own, well, that seems like something for tomorrow me to worry about, sort of approach to financial planning, really. They weren't worried about how much they were borrowing. Okay. And Woodrow Wilson, uh, he was also campaigning for a second term in office on a no-war platform, which is another good reason to try not to get into a war. Yeah. So I had to explain to me what changes and turns the US from a neutral to a belligerent. Well, the first thing that started this American turning towards intervention happened before the the presidential election. It was the sinking of the Lusitania. Ah. Um, The Lusitania was this British ocean liner launched by Cunard in 1906. And in the early 20th century, Cunard's main competitors for these transatlantic voyages were German shipping lines. So the British Navy... They put money in. They supported Cunard to build these two speedy liners to compete with the Germans, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, so they could up their game a bit. And in return for the Navy, there was this understanding that should it be needed, these ships would be available for military use in times of war. So the Navy had funded their production. I mean, presumably decanting any holidaymakers first. (laughs) Personally speaking, I think I'd prefer to take a chance on this to a normal cruise, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, quite. So in 1914, as we said, the Royal Navy's blockaded Germany and they've declared the North Sea a war zone. And in response, Germany declared the waters around the UK a war zone and started to intensify its submarine warfare. 
Right, and before the Lusitania left New York on the 1st of May 1915, German embassy in the States actually took out adverts in newspapers warning people it would be dangerous to sail on it. Do you know what, John? I think this is happening, what, three years after the Titanic. If I then read an advert in the paper saying, don't sail on this ship, it's dangerous, I don't think I would have got on it. I think, I mean, what, is sailing <laughs> through a declared war zone, you say? I mean, no, I'm all right. I think I, I quite like New York. I think I'll stay here. I mean, what's Liverpool got anyway? It hasn't even got the Beatles yet. You go on without me. I'm all right. I think you're onto something there. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, on the 7th of May, 1915, mm. a German U-boat torpedo the Lusitania, 11 miles off the south coast of Ireland. And I know exactly where this is because it's always where we go on holiday, just off Castle Townsend in Cork. And there's all the pubs there. I've got all the newspaper cuttings and it's still like a, a big deal around that part of West Cork. Oh, wow. But anyway, that's by the by. It got torpedoed and then there was a second explosion yeah. that happened and it sank the boat in 18 minutes and it killed 1,199 passengers and crew, including 123 wow. Americans. It's a big shock. Which is huge loss of life, you know, a civilian life. Yeah. And Germany argued that the boat was a valid military target because they said it was carrying munitions, but actually the ship wasn't armed for battle at that point and it was just carrying hundreds and hundreds of civilians. Yeah. So the US stepped in and they issue a warning to Germany. Now, Germany obviously doesn't want the US to enter the war at this point. So they agree to stop this unrestricted submarine warfare. So America's pretty relieved of not having to join the war because they had quite a lot going on on their own doorstep, didn't they? Particularly on the southern border with Mexico. Yeah, so a bit of background to this. In 1848, after the Mexican-American War, California, Nevada, Utah, most of Arizona and the western half of New Mexico and the western quarter of Colorado and the southwest corner of Wyoming were all ceded by Mexico to the United States. Yeah, wow. And then from around 1910, the Mexican Revolution has been underway. So there's these various power struggles in Mexico have been taking place after the ousting of the president, Porfirio Diaz. And then by 1915, there was a state of civil war in Mexico where these previous allies, who were Pancho Villa and Venustiano Carranza, they led the rival factions in Mexico. I have to say, fantastic pronunciation, Angela. Thank you. I, I practised. <laughs> so 1915, November of 1915... The US had aided Carranza directly against Villa. And in March 1916, Villa conducted a raid on the US border town of Columbus, New Mexico. His troops burned down the town, seized 100 horses and mules and uh, other military supplies. No wall then, no wall between Mexico and America back then. No. Uh, 18 Americans and about 80 of Villa's men were killed before they headed back across the border. Yeah, and in response to the attack, President Wilson sent General Black Jack Pershing, what a great name, and his troops on this expedition across the border to try and hunt Villa down in Mexico. So Wilson knew at this point that the Germans had actually been supplying weapons and aid to various factions in Mexico during the revolution. Right. And German officials across Latin America were really stirring things up. They were telling anyone that lis would listen that this expedition Pershing was on to hunt down Villa was just the start and that the US were planning to annex pretty much all of Central America because they knew that if they could somehow draw the US into a war with Mexico, it would prevent the US from supporting the allies in Europe. They wouldn't have the resources to do that. Yep. So... While Woodrow Wilson has to show a military response to Villa's raid on American soil, he wants it to be minimal. He doesn't want to stir things up anymore. 
Right. And so by now, Carranza's forces had control of most of the country in Mexico with elections planned for autumn 1916. And Carranza wasn't best pleased about American troops being on Mexican soil, was he? No, no. So Carranza's troops fired on Pershing's troops and Pershing sought permission to retaliate, but Wilson denied it because, like I say, he didn't want to stir things up. So by late 1916, there were more than 10,000 US soldiers camped out in northern Mexico. And by this point, the hunt for Villa's soldiers was basically over. But withdrawal's not a great look at this stage. Wilson has, he's got an election campaign ramping up. So he just kind of leaves the soldiers there because he didn't want the Republicans to be able to reframe any withdrawal as some sort of cowardly retreat. Right. Particularly his campaigning on this no war platform. Yeah, and he sort of sees himself as a peace broker. Mm. Throughout 1915, 1916, Woodrow Wilson has made several attempts to broker peace in Europe, hasn't he? He has. Sorry, John, I was distracted then because listeners might not realise this, but I'm in the studio and John's at home and this studio is hotter than the sun. And I'm just discreetly rubbing an <laughs> ice cube over my decolletage. And I just slightly panicked that John thought I was trying to do some sort of seductive manoeuvre, but I'm not. It is really hot in here. If Jackie comes in now and says, what are you watching? Yeah, just, just Angela rubbing herself with ice cubes, Jackie. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, no, I'm at, I'm at home. I'm at home listeners because I've got a little puppy now and the puppy has to be looked after. So I can't yeah. come into the studio today. But next time we'll be back in the studio together. And, I, and I'll rub ice cubes on myself while you're in the room. Anyway, what are we talking about? Oh, yes, Woodrow Wilson. So, yes, he was fixated on ending the war in his way in order to pave the way for his idea of a League of Nations. This was his philosophy. He wants to bring the world democracy and, let's face it, a little bit of US-style capitalism. Yeah, and this is a big shift for US foreign affairs over this period. The Democrats leaning towards internationalism, while the Republicans becoming increasingly isolationist. They'll happily back the British, but would prefer to stay out of an international sort of war. Yeah, exactly. They, they sort of see backing the British as not being interventionist in the same way as it would be yeah. with any other country. So anyway, Woodrow Wilson, he does win the election at the end of 1916 and his second term in office will officially begin in March 1917. Now, meanwhile, over in Imperial Germany, on the 22nd of November 1916, so around the same time that Wilson's winning the election, they get a new foreign secretary, one Arthur Zimmerman. Arthur, Arthur, however you want to anglicise it. Now, he's a little bit different from his predecessor in that he was a commoner. Um, He wasn't from an aristocratic family. He didn't have the telltale Von in his surname that most of the imperial government had. He just earned a law degree, became a career civil servant in the German Foreign Office, and he's worked his way up and is now the Foreign Secretary. And Zimmerman had previously served as a consul in China. And the story goes that when he returned home to Germany from China, he went via this route that included a train trip across the US. And apparently this one train trip that he took across the US meant that Zimmerman regarded himself as a bit of an expert on US affairs. Because that's how it Fantastic. works, isn't it? You get a tra- That's why I'm such an expert on East Croydon, because I travel through it daily. <laughs> so the US government were pretty pleased with his appointment, weren't they? Thinking that as a commoner, he might you know, represent a turn to a more democratic Germany, someone who might lobby internally for peace and help Wilson to achieve his goals. Because now his election's won, 
Wilson can return his focus to being the man who brokers peace in Europe and forms the League of Nations. Yes. And by the end of 1916, the US has also suddenly got a little bit more leverage with the Allies to negotiate peace, largely because it turns out Britain has reached her credit limit. Uh, JP Morgan makes a report to the US Federal Reserve Board that Britain has run out of assets to secure any loans. Now, this means that any further loans the US banks make to Britain will have to be unsecured. And that makes it a bit tricky for the Federal Reserve and the US government because unsecured loans to the Allies would give the supposedly neutral US a little bit of a vested interest in the Allies winning the war. Because if they don't, they're not getting paid back. So that could lead to financial panic and economic decline in the US. So it's a bit of a tricky situation for their neutrality. Yeah, and the idea that the First World War could have massive ramifications for depression and economic crash mm. sometime later. Who could imagine such a thing? Who could imagine such a thing? <laughs> On the other hand, the situation gives Wilson a bit more scope to persuade the British to try negotiating for peace, reliant as they are on um, the US cash and credit. So the British, uh, somewhat grudgingly, you know, thinking they were still a, the major world power, set out their terms for peace for Wilson to take to the central powers to try and thrash out some agreement. Yeah, and it's a pretty long list of demands, including restoration of Belgian independence, independence for Serbia, Romania and Montenegro, deliberation of Czechs, Slovaks, Italians, Southern Slavs and Romanians from the Austrian Empire, restitution of provinces taken from the Allies by force in the past, i.e. Alsace-Lorraine, liberation of all German shepherds and free schnapps for all. I might have made up a couple at the end there. You you left out uh, liberation of Narnia and all the statues to turn back to real people. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't leave a lot of room for negotiating, did they? No. And in response, the Central Powers reiterated their view that only direct talks with the Allies would end the war. They didn't want this talk about international peacekeeping agreements at this point. They wanted to wait till the end of the war. They just wanted Wilson to leave them alone to settle it directly. Um, But not taking the hint and not wanting to miss his chance to be remembered forever as that guy who brokered international peace... Wilson starts preparing a speech to Congress with all his ideas for exactly how he's going to make peace happen. And meanwhile, back in Imperial Germany, different factions have different ideas about how the war could end or should end. General feeling was that keeping the US out of the war was a good thing. Yeah, Germans' action was increasingly being controlled by this pair of quite hawkish generals, Paul von Hindenburg, who later becomes the German president, uh, yes. and Erich Ludendorff. So while they knew that if the US entered the war, they'd be in trouble, they also knew their ability to hold their own against three major powers was waning. Their best chance was to restart the unrestricted submarine warfare they'd agreed to end after the sinking of the Lusitania. And though you know, doing this would almost certainly bring the US into the war, they calculated that it would take the US longer to get their troops into battle than it would for a new U-boat campaign to end the war swiftly. Yeah. Yeah, I think they calculated that the U-boats could end it before America could get there. Or at least they thought this was their best last-ditch attempt to win the war. It would have to be via the U-boats. They knew they couldn't win it on the fronts, probably, at this stage. Yeah. So the Chancellor of Imperial Germany, a ready for this, John? Go on. Theobald von Betzmann-Holweg, <laughs> along with the German ambassador in Washington, who is Count Johann Heinrich von Bernstorff, just normal guys, John. Yeah. Um, they weren't convinced about the German Navy's ability to win the war. They argued against restarting this submarine warfare. So within Germany, you had these hawkish generals and the other guys going, hang on, guys, let's not do anything rash here. 
Yeah. Now, there's some quite important details about how exactly these peace discussions are taking place between the Chancellor in Germany and the German ambassador in Washington. Yes. So the German transatlantic telegraph cable from Berlin to the German embassy in Washington had been severed by the Allies right at the beginning of the war. So in order to get messages between Bernstorff, who's the ambassador in Washington, and the German command, Mm -hmm. the US had allowed them to use their diplomatic cable between Berlin and Washington to their embassy. So they're sending messages in codes that the US isn't able to read on the US diplomatic cable. And that's been agreed. That's okay. Right. So technically, this wasn't something a neutral country should be doing, was it? I mean, letting a belligerent country send coded messages on its telegraph lines, unless they're also provided with a cipher to ensure it was only being used for diplomacy and not military purposes. Am I right? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a grey area, I suppose, because neutral nations also have to honour the diplomatic privileges of diplomats from belligerent nations. So the use of the cable was sort of granted as this limited privilege with what the US thought was quite a noble purpose. The Secretary of State at the time wasn't that happy about it, but right. it was tricky. Uh, but after Wilson's approaches with the Allies' peace terms had been rejected by the Germans, the US continued to allow encrypted conversations to go back and forth on the US diplomatic cable, which remained open between the German ambassador in Washington and the German Foreign Office. What harm could it do, Angela? Absolutely. That's it. They allowed it to be open for these talks. The talks ended. Nothing came of them. Yet they still allowed that cable to be open. Well, I'll tell you what harm it could do. Do you remember, John, the Imperial German Foreign Office had this new foreign secretary, our friend Arthur Zimmerman. Yes. uh, Who wasn't aristocratic and therefore Wilson thought he'd be the ideal person to get peace talks moving, right? I I do remember him, Angela, because in an episode called the Zimmerman Telegram. (laughs) He's quite prominent. (laughs) Yes. So it turns out Wilson had got that really wrong. Arthur Zimmerman's thinking was very much in line with the hawkish generals. Okay. So he was a bit more sceptical even than them about the US military potential to make much of a difference if they did enter the war. Because after all, John, he was the expert. He'd done one train trip through the US, John. He knew America. (laughs) He knew what he was talking about. And in fact, he had a meeting with the US ambassador in Berlin, James Gerard. And in this meeting, Zimmerman shows Gerard this data that he'd got from the US census in 1910 that showed just how many millions of US citizens were born in Germany or had parents born in Germany. And he warned the ambassador. He said that if the US went to war, they could find themselves with half a million German revolutionaries on their home soil. To which Gerard is said to have calmly responded that the US also had half a million lampposts. Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> Zinger. <laughs> so Zimmerman has these pretty optimistic views of how Germany could overcome the US in the war. But belt and braces, he also thought it'd be, you know, he should increase Germany's chances even more if the US were to say get bogged down in another conflict elsewhere. And he reckons he knows how he can make this happen. Yes. So his plan is he's going to send a message to Bernstorff, the ambassador in Washington, about the plan to restart this unrestricted submarine warfare and that it's going to happen on the 1st of February 1917 and that Bernstorff, he should, via the German ambassador in Mexico City, approach Carranza, you know, the leader in Mexico and who's likely to become president in the upcoming elections, he should approach him and invite Mexico into an alliance with Germany to go to war on the US. And in exchange, 
Germany would provide financial aid and would arrange for Mexico to get Texas, New Mexico and Arizona back as part of a peace settlement. This is pretty massive, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty nuts, I think. Yeah, Germany are about to entice Mexico to start a war with the US. That's insane. And the idea that Germany had the power to sort of uh, do anything about Texas or Arizona or whatever. So crazy plan. I need a break to take that in, Angela. Yes. And let a belligerent nation use my diplomatic cable right now. Is that a euphemism, John? Sounds like one. (laughs) We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to We Are History. We're at the end of 1916 and German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmermann has had this great idea that Germany should propose forming an alliance with Mexico against the United States with the purpose of drawing the Americans into a war with Mexico and thus diminishing their ability to support the Allies when Germany restarts its unrestricted submarine campaign in Europe. Crikey. Yes, and all Zimmerman has to do to start this ball rolling is to get a message to Bernstoff, the German ambassador in Washington. Yes, so originally Zimmerman's plan was to send this message to the German ambassador on board a ship called the Deutschland, which was this new merchant submarine. Um, However, her scheduled trip in 1917 ended up being cancelled. But undeterred, he has this idea. Remember that US diplomatic cable that Wilson was letting Germany use to talk about peace stuff? I do, Angela. Well, there doesn't seem to be anything stopping Zimmerman using that to get his message to Mexico via Washington. In the meantime, as Zimmerman is making plans to draw him into war with Mexico, Wilson is laying out some plans of his own. On the 11th of Jan 1917, He addresses the Senate to tell them his vision for peace without victory. Yeah, so he believes that if one side actually wins the war, it's going to foster bitterness and resentment, John. Yeah, losing wars will do that. Yeah. And so he thinks that that's not a good foundation for lasting peace. He believes that only peace between equals can last, not between a victor and a loser. So only if neither side actually wins can there be peace. It's not like the end of the First World War led to loads of bitterness in Germany and the rise of one party, you know, that uh, uh, led to the next war. No, John. Of course, Woodrow Wilson didn't have the benefit of hindsight. But he's actually laying the foundations for his League of Nations idea, isn't he? And the Democrats received his speech well, it should be said. Yeah, they did. His detractors obviously scoffed at it. Um, Theodore Roosevelt said, peace without victory is the natural ideal of a man who is too proud to fight. Ugh. Yes. But anyway, just five days after this peace without victory speech, on January the 16th, 1917, Arthur Zimmerman sends his telegram. And he actually sends two cables to increase chances of the message getting through. So he sends one via a legitimate German diplomatic cable that hasn't been severed, which goes between neutral Sweden and the German ambassador in neutral Buenos Aires. Okay. But more audaciously... He does indeed use the US's own diplomatic telegraph cable to send the message to the ambassador in Washington. And this message is what becomes known as the Zimmerman telegram. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the route the US message took from Berlin was to pass along a telegraph line to Denmark, also neutral. And from there, it went underwater to this place called Britain. 
and from Britain mm. to the US. Hmm. Yes, and apparently it never occurred to Zimmerman or the Americans that had allowed the use of this cable that A, the cable would pass through British-controlled relay stations or that B, the plucky Brits might just have broken their diplomatic code. <laughs> and that's what they'd done. So Room 40 was a cryptographic office based in the old Admiralty buildings and they were headed up by Admiral William Hall, who was the Director of Naval Intelligence. And initially, Room 40 was using these recovered German naval codebooks that the Russians had found in the Baltic Sea. And during the first two years of the war, they were mostly concentrating on these tactical naval traffic. But once their success helped the British Navy to bottle up the German fleet, it turned to breaking German traffic of more strategic value to the Allies. So the codebreakers at Room 40 actually managed to get their hands on the coded Zimmerman telegram at about the same time as Bernstoff in the Washington Embassy did. Is that quick? That's right. Yeah. And both versions of Zimmerman's telegram were intercepted. So the one that had gone on the cable to Buenos Aires and the one to Washington, they were both intercepted. Wow. And it turned out they'd been enciphered using a code called Code 0075, which, as luck would have it, the British had just already partially broken. Yeah. So within 24 hours of intercepting these telegrams, Room 40 already knew they had a bit of a bombshell on their hands and that this telegram contained information that could finally get the US to declare war on Germany and join the Allies. So did they release what they'd uncovered? Well, no, they couldn't. Because you see, the main problem, John, with someone finding out that you've broken their diplomatic code is that they then know you've broken their diplomatic code. Clever. So that means they immediately change their code and you can no longer read their messages. So you have to time it. Right. Did they show the US at least what the Germans were planning? Well, that was also a bit tricky because, John, it's going to be a bit of a dead giveaway that British intelligence have been monitoring the US diplomatic cable, ah. which because they were a neutral, wasn't really cricket. Or baseball, as they would say. Yeah. Or baseball, as they would say. Yes, quite. <laughs> so Hall ordered the telegram's existence be kept secret from all other agencies, while the cryptographers, I can almost say that, worked to fill the gaps in the message, and they decided what to do with it. Yeah. And then the thing that Germany had told the US would happen, happened. On the 31st of January, 1917, at 4.10 in the afternoon, Secretary of State Robert Lansing in the US receives a German diplomatic note informing the US government that Germany would resume U-boat attacks without warning on all sea traffic around the British Isles, France and Italy. Mm. So things are really heating up. And so Lansing recommends at this point that US break all diplomatic relations with Germany immediately. And Woodrow Wilson wants time to think about what the best course of action is, but his cabinet's unanimous in their support for just breaking off diplomatic relations. So it's hotting up. The next day, Wilson speaks to Congress and announces the decision to break off relations. He expresses hope that Germany won't follow through on their threat, but if they do, he would do whatever necessary to save US lives. That's right. So with these diplomatic ties broken, the Ambassador Bernstorff in Washington is preparing to pack up the embassy and go home. But before he goes back to Berlin, he follows the instructions that the Zimmerman telegram gave him. So because it looks like the US is getting closer to joining the war, he then sends a message, as instructed, to the German ambassador in Mexico City with all the details of Zimmerman's telegram and tells him 
to start negotiating an alliance with Carranza's government in Mexico. And he sends the message using an older diplomatic code. This becomes important later because the Mexican embassy doesn't have the ciphers for the 0075 code that Zimmerman had used yet. So he rewrites the message and sends it using this older code to the embassy. I'm a bit sad the number for that code wasn't 007. It's got 0075. 007 so would have been better. It's so close. <laughs> would, have been, would have been more fun. Back in room 40, they'd eventually inform the British Foreign Office of the telegram's existence and what it contained. They told them on the 5th of February. Yeah. Now, the British have major concerns about a Germany-Mexico alliance, um, not least because most of the Navy's modern ships are being fuelled by Mexican oil. Uh, and, and they know that sharing information contained in the telegram could also sway US public opinion and force Woodrow Wilson's hand into joining the Allies in the war, which is what they want. Yeah. But how are they going to let the US know what they've discovered without showing that they've been monitoring US diplomatic cables? Right. So as luck would have it, the British ambassador in Mexico... Now, this is complicated, John, so concentrate, right? You ready for this? I'll concentrate. The British ambassador in Mexico, he has a contact in the telegraph office there who owes him a favour. So he calls it in and he manages to get hold of the copy of the German telegram that Bernstorff in Washington had just sent to the embassy in Mexico. And it was the one that was worded a bit differently to the Zimmerman original and used that older diplomatic code, a code 13040, which is even... Less impressive than 0075. So being an older and less sophisticated code, British intelligence had obviously already cracked it. And so they were able to fill in gaps from the original cable. The stuff that they couldn't work out in Zimmerman's original telegram was all there for them to see in this message. So showing this decoded telegram to the US instead of the original Zimmerman one meant that Room 40 would not have to let on A, that they'd monitored the US cable, or B, that they'd cracked a more recent diplomatic code. Am I right? That's right. So a bit later in February on the 19th, Hall showed it to Edward Bell. He was an official from the US Embassy in London. He served as a sort of liaison to British intelligence. Yeah. Bell's immediate reaction was pretty predictably to denounce the telegram as a fake. Surely it was utterly ridiculous to suggest that the Germans were in talks with Mexico about starting a war to get back to Texas, which is quite believable because yeah. it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Hall reassured him that the telegram was genuine. And to prove it, he suggested that the US government could check with Western Union and they would see that Bernstorff right. had sent that coded telegram to Mexico City at exactly the time Britain said they had. And then if the State ah. Department wanted to forward a copy of the coded telegram to its embassy in London, yep. Hall would bring over Room 40's own copy of the German code book for that code and then the US could decipher it themselves. So they, they could see for themselves that it was genuine without, yep. you know, it, it having been interpreted yep. by the British. So satisfied it was real, Bell made sure a copy was sent to the US ambassador, Walter Page, who in turn reported it to Woodrow Wilson on February 24th, 1917. Yes, and Wilson, understandably, pretty indignant on hearing the news. There was no suggestion he ever questioned the authenticity of the telegram, as far as we know. 
In Mexico City, the US ambassador asked the foreign ministry there about the telegram and whether they'd had any approach from the German ambassador. And of course, they denied all knowledge of it, Mexico, um, which was a lie, of course. But there's no evidence that Mexico were ever actually interested in the alliance. It looks like Carranza did speak to his military commanders about the proposition, uh, but Mexico was just too broken from all the recent conflicts. They had no appetite for a new one. They just enacted a new constitution. There were presidential elections coming up. They didn't need it. They didn't want it. Yeah. They also knew full well that Germany could promise all the military aid in the world, but while the British blockade was still in effect, there was no way to get supplies from Germany to Mexico anyway. No, exactly. And Mexico had very little hope of defeating the US on the battlefield at that time. And even if they had, all those ceded territories that Germany were promising to give back, if they had been returned, well, then then just having to deal with a load of new territories, largely inhabited by a lot of English-speaking people who've got no desire to be Mexican. Right. And as far as Mexico is concerned, an alliance with Germany at that time was just more trouble than it was worth, really, and could only end badly. I think that's time for another little break, Angela. While I question the authenticity of these notes Angela sent me, we'll see you in a bit after this. Hello and welcome back to Nous sommes l'histoire. Oh, hello. America has just been informed about the Zimmerman telegram, whereby Germany has made contact with Mexico about making an alliance against the US. Yes, and President Woodrow Wilson is playing things pretty carefully. Now, it's delicate, John, because despite everything, he's still quite hesitant to declare war. He's won the presidency on a no-war platform. There's a lot of mixed feelings about going to war in the States. So he's he's got to tread carefully here. And while he'd been re-elected at the end of 1916, remember his new term doesn't actually begin until noon on the 4th of March. We're still in February. As he was already president, it didn't really matter. But it did mean that any address to Congress he gave then in February would essentially be to a lame duck Congress anyway, as the 65th Congress elected in November wouldn't take office until he did. And under the terms at the time, the new Congress were not required to meet until the first Monday in December. There will be a test on this, listeners, so I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> well, it's quite important, this, because the point is he can't really declare war. It won't give him the legitimacy. Yeah. So presidents do have the power to call Congress earlier. And on one hand, Republicans are clamouring for him to do that. But on the other hand, there's a large contingent of pacifists he's dealing with who want Wilson to adjourn Congress straight away. Right. And these pacifists, they were led by a man called Fighting Bob LaFollette, which is a bit ironic what? name for a pacifist. But apparently it's because of his energetic manner, job. Yeah, Americans love giving politicians alliterative names, don't they? Mm. General Mad Dog Mattis, we had. Uh, we don't do that with politicians here so much, do we? No, it's shame, really, isn't it? Bullshitting Boris, lying Liz. I don't know. Got any more? I mean, we have uh, we have rhymes. We have Maggie Thatcher, Milk Snatcher. Yeah, that's true. We're a bit Tony more... B. Liar. <laughs> a bit more creative. Anyway, let's not get into that. Uh, Wilson decided what he would do is he would wait for the old Congress to officially end before doing anything. He didn't want to give those agitating for war in the old Congress a platform to do so. And if he did end up declaring war, the new Congress would have more legitimacy. That's right. But he also didn't want to adjourn Congress because 
there was something he still needed to do at this stage. He wanted the Congress to grant him the authority to arm merchant shipping vessels. This was his answer to the submarine warfare problem. And he felt that that could buy him time until the new Congress convened in nine months time or whenever it was. So on the 26th of Feb 1917, Wilson addressed Congress to ask for that authorization. And the next day, our friend fighting Bob Follett, the pacifist, he came up with a plan to filibuster this authorization. He didn't want it to go ahead. So he got 10 senators to sign up to join him in filibustering it. So seeing that he was going to face opposition to his proposal, Wilson decided that the time was right to leak the details of the Zimmerman Telegraph to the press. After all, he needed not only Congress, but he needed public opinion on his side too, Angela. That's right. So on the 1st of March, newspapers across the states carried these headlines saying that Germany was trying to ally with Mexico to attack the USA. And it wouldn't have seemed that implausible to the American people when you consider it was less than a year after Pancho Villa's raid on Columbus and all that had happened. Yeah, but of course, the news reports couldn't explain how the press had got this information or how the message had been intercepted and decoded. So the anti-war senators immediately started throwing its authenticity into question. Yeah, many people jumped to the correct conclusion that British intelligence was involved somewhere along the line, but that didn't necessarily give the telegram legitimacy in everybody's eyes. Yeah, especially, for example, you're an Irish-American politician, you might be a little sceptical about anything British intelligence was telling you. Exactly. So Woodrow Wilson himself, he had to come out publicly to confirm the authenticity of the telegram, which he had no qualms about doing that. But of course, he had no way to explain how it had been intercepted and deciphered and to prove it. So publisher William Randolph Hearst, a committed pacifist, instructed his newspapers to take the position that it was probably a forgery. Yes. And you also had, you had George Vierek, who he was a German-American poet and pro-German propagandist. And he was editor of The Fatherland. There were a lot of, um, you know, people with German descent in the US. Yes. And he was actually working with German agents at the time. So he called the Zimmerman telegram preposterous, brazen and obviously faked. But he would say that, wouldn't he? And he did go on later to work with the Nazis. So, yeah. Yes, nobody on any side thought the Germans would admit to selling the telegram, especially with no public proof of authenticity. And sure enough, the German ambassador in Mexico City publicly denied any knowledge of having received such a telegram. He did. But then, a couple of days later, 3rd of March, Arthur Zimmerman's holding this press conference in Berlin, and there was a US reporter, William Baird Hale, who worked for Hearst's papers, but actually was being paid by the German government to advise them about press and PR in the US. He asked Zimmerman directly about the telegram, and much to everyone's surprise, he replied, I did not deny it. It is true. Oh! (laughs) Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Zimmerman. It's not especially clear why he admitted to sending the telegram. He probably thought it was pointless not to at this stage. Yeah, and he also used the argument in his defence that the telegram was justified. He said it wasn't an act of war, but rather a contingency plan for if the US declared war first on Germany. Perfectly legit. Right. But anyway, back in the US, releasing the details of the telegram had started to have the desired effect. And the House of Representatives passed Woodrow Wilson's request to arm merchant vessels. That was passed by a margin of 403 to 13. Yeah, but getting the proposal through the Senate, John, was a bit of a different story because of our friend fighting Bob Follett. Oh, yeah. He was pretty determined to filibuster this bill. And if he and the senators he'd rounded up could just hold out until noon on the 4th of March... That would mean the immediate end of this old Congress and would force the end of the bill because that's when the new Congress wow. it's would like a drama. take over. Do, do we need to explain what filibustering is, do you think? People know that, don't they? 
Oh, say it anyway. Just it's just talking for a lot until you've run out of parliamentary time, isn't it? Really? Yeah, exactly. You should keep talking till the debates ended, and then the vote can't happen. Yeah. The debate started on the third of March, so he's just got to keep the debate going till noon the next day. Yeah. Uh, but seventy-five senators have put themselves on record as supporting the bill. Now, today that would have been enough to pass it. Right. However, at the time, the rules were that even if just one senator wanted to keep talking, wanted to filibuster in the debate, you couldn't stop them. And so, Fighting Bob was going to do exactly that. Tensions were pretty high. For some reason, Fighting Bob had brought a loaded pistol with him. It's America, remember? Because <laughs> if you're going to be sleep deprived from filibustering, you should probably be armed. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say different times, but it's America. So (laughs) Fighting Bob's plan was to spend the last two hours of the debate with his own speech. So to end the filibuster with this big moment, two-hour speech. Uh, But angry pro-Wilson Democrats, they managed to hold the floor themselves to stop him doing that. So noon came. The vice president was forced to adjourn the Senate. So Fighting Bob got what he wanted, but he was denied this spotlight-grabbing moment that he'd wanted as well. While all this was happening, Wilson was elsewhere taking his oath of office for his second term in a private ceremony ahead of the official inauguration the next day. He was pretty pissed off that the Senate hadn't managed to agree, and that's when he made his now famous statement, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. Yeah, this is a little aside really to the story, but I think it's really interesting because it's this event, which is why just a few days later they changed the rules of filibustering uh, and what is called a clôture, is that how you say it, clôture? Yeah. Provision yeah, was enacted. Um, and that allowed the Senate to end a debate that had a two-thirds majority vote. So they could no longer do this thing where if one senator disagreed, he could filibuster it. If there was a two-thirds majority for it, then that would pass. And that rule stayed in place up until 1975 when it was changed to a three-fifths majority. But that's where that rule came from, that moment. As it happened, Wilson reminded the Senate that he didn't actually need their authority to order the arming of merchant ships, so he went ahead and signed an executive order to do so instead. Yeah. Uh, With everything going on, he was left no choice, though, but to call the new Congress into session. So he initially, he set April the 16th as the date, giving himself a month or so to think about the possibility or probability of war and what that would mean for this vision of his for peace without victory. It was deeply concerned that war would fundamentally change the character of the American people. He said in a conversation with journalist and friend Frank I. Cobb, once I lead people into war, they'll forget there was ever such a thing as tolerance. To fight, you must be brutal and ruthless, and the spirit of ruthless brutality will enter the very fibre of our national life, infecting Congress, the courts, the policeman on the beat, and the man on the street. This is pretty rich, considering they'd had the American Civil War, they'd killed all the Native Americans. I don't know where you thought America was coming from at this point, but anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's still pretty prophetic stuff when you think about it. Yeah, the following day, Wilson spoke to his cabinet and they were unanimous for war. He didn't reveal his own lingering doubts and he did bring forward the upcoming scheduled Congress to the 2nd of April. So the new Congress convened on that date and that evening, Wilson arrived to address them. And there's a solemn mood. And in his speech, he asked them to declare the recent course of the Imperial German government to be, in fact, nothing less than war against the government and people of the United States. And in the rest of his speech, he made it clear that the declaration would be against the autocratic government of Imperial Germany that made war for its own purposes and that the US had no quarrel with the German people. 
He said that a democratic Germany would never have committed such crimes. And he laid out his vision, again, of this post-war world that he could foresee whereby peace was maintained by a partnership of democratic nations. And the speech included the line that would come to define his foreign policy legacy and his personal reasons for entering the war, which was the world must be made safe for democracy. His speech was greeted with applause and flag waving, except a cause for a grumpy old fighting Bob LaFollette, who sat quietly defeated with his arms resolutely folded. Yeah. Two days later, the Senate spent 13 hours debating the war resolution, and old fighting Bob personally took up four of those 13 hours, unsurprisingly. Yeah, but in the end, only six senators voted no. That's three Democrats and three Republicans. The House debate was similar, and the final vote was... 373 to 50 for going to war. There were, there's a little interesting bit of women's history here, John, for you. Um, I know you like women's history. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. This new Congress included Jeanette Ranking. Do you know who she is? You do, because you can see my notes. She was the first woman to hold federal office in the US. So big deal. Cool. And she was elected in Montana and to date remains the only woman ever elected to Congress in Montana. Right. Her vote here is really interesting because she'd been a lifelong pacifist. She was a suffragist. But there was a lot of pressure on her from advocates of women's suffrage to vote for the declaration of war because they saw this as an opportunity to prove that women weren't too weak for Congress. They were capable of making difficult decisions. They were capable of being belligerent. Yeah. But when it came to voting, she really hesitated because she was a pacifist. Yeah. So she did vote with her heart in the end. She did vote against the war with tears in her eyes, apparently, John. Oh, it's women. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Bloody wuss. I mean, you know, uh, what can you expect, Angela? You know I've always been against women having the vote, and this has sort of proved it. I know, I know, John. (laughs) So it was with only a bit of opposition from those commies and ladies who are too emotional to get involved in this sort of thing anyway. The US became belligerent in the Great War, which is what it was actually called. Nobody can really know the precise reasons why Wilson opted for war. The resumption of submarine warfare, Zimmerman Telegram are the main reasons why it's felt he really had no choice. Yeah, I did read some interesting things about another probable factor that doesn't get spoken about as much for reasons that are quite obvious, I suppose. But remember that around the same time, on the 8th of March, 1917, the February Revolution had taken place in Petrograd. Sorry, February Revolution in March. Yeah, it was a Julian versus Gregorian calendar thing, John. It was March as far as the West was concerned. And on the 12th of March, Tsar Nicholas abdicated. Tsar Nicholas II abdicated. Now, Russia had been a bit of a problem for Woodrow Wilson's framing of the war as being one between the world's great democracies and the world's most powerful autocracies, being that imperial Russia was just as, if not more, autocratic than Austria, Germany or the Ottoman Empire. So bearing in mind this is all happening before the October Bolshevik Revolution, Wilson felt he could now justify his moral argument because Russia now, after the... February Revolution, it can be seen as a fledgling democracy. And its democracy is under assault by the Kaiser's troops. So we know Wilson's vision for a post-war League of Nations was that only democratic governments need apply. So allying with Russia would have undermined that ideal somewhat before this point. But the revolution happening eliminated this obstacle to Wilson going to war. And now they were just another democracy calling for support. And I guess the power of hindsight means that this part of his reasoning 
is slightly glossed over in history now because yeah. by the time the war was over in 1918, the radical policies of the new communist government in Russia didn't exactly fit yeah. his ideal either once the Bolshevik revolution had taken place. So they weren't invited to join the League of Nations, not until the 30s and then only until they went and invaded Finland. Yes. I mean, you know, so it took a long time for Russia to become the peaceful democratic state it is today. Um, <laughs> that is how the US came to enter the Great War. Very informative, Angela. Thank you, John. What happened next? Well, you know, spring 1918, the war-weary Allied armies greeted these fresh American troops who arrived at the rate of 10,000 a day, John. Right. Uh, at a time when the Germans were unable to replace their losses. They didn't have this fresh supply of new young men. Yeah. Uh, the Americans helped the Allied forces defeat and turn back the powerful final German spring offensive. And most importantly, the Americans played a role in the Allied 100 Days Offensive of August to November 1918. Yes. I, I do remember reading a bit about this when I wrote my history book, which I mentioned in every bloody podcast. But <laughs> the sense was with America coming into the war, uh, the Germans threw everything into that spring offensive before uh, Americans make any difference. Mm. And it was that spring offensive that sort of killed the Germans off. So the psychological effect of the Americans coming to the war was almost as big as the physical impact of extra troops. But the official figures yeah. for US military war deaths in World War One is 116,516, which includes 53,402 battle deaths and 63,114 non-combat deaths. That's more. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, John, on that cheerful note, uh, yeah. I think that's it for this week's episode of how the US entered World War One. Yeah, I think we've got some people we should thank. Yes, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, don't forget, you can support our Patreon if you go to patreon.com slash history. And we've got some shout-outs to do. John, do you want to start? Susan Abrook, thank you. Uh, Jennifer D'Souza. Sandra Hines. Cheryl Harris. And Helen Winkle, thank you. Thank all of you who've uh, supported us. Uh, it really helps us make the podcast. Um, we are very grateful. It really does. That's it for this week. It is. We'll be back next week. We'll see you next week on We Are History. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell. With audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, We Are History is a Podmasters production. Listener.